when I'm creating courses or when I'm teaching, I'm more influenced by my own experience of using the language to communicate as a learner or trying to really understand what is the next step for the class I'm teaching, for the person I'm teaching to help them fulfill what their own pressing communicative need is more than thinking they really need to understand the data now. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 129. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis. And I am going to be uh, doing a solo interview today with Philippa Wenzel, who is going to be talking to us all about her own personal experience and a bit about Lingoda, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. So, Philippa, let's just dive straight in. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, your own personal story with languages. How did you get into them at first? And we'll uh, develop things from there. Hi, Benny. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. Um, yeah, I have had, I guess, over the last 12 years, I would say, of my life, I've been in one way or another preoccupied with languages. I started learning languages at school um, and had maybe quite a similar experience, as you described, Benny, of learning languages at school, but it being very exam-focused and not very communicative. And I didn't really have the sense at school that was the point for our teachers of us learning languages. You know, you'd go into your GCSE oral exam and they'd ask you what you did at the weekend. And there was never really an expectation that you would say what you really did at the weekend. It was more about saying something with the right grammar that maybe had some nice vocabulary in it. And despite this, um, maybe sort of unsatisfying introduction to languages, I had the sense that this was something that I really wanted to go deeper into and master. And I was really lucky to be able to spend a year between school and university University, focusing on languages mostly throughout that year on French and German and then divided my time between both and took some odd jobs doing tutoring and I worked in a youth museum in Berlin in that time and this was when I felt that I really got the language bug and this was exactly what you talk about um, over and over again Benny of the way to learn a language is to live it but I had the privilege of being able to do that during this time and use language kind of for what language is for, which is connecting with people, communicating, discovering a culture. And I took everything that came my way to do this, whether that was a conversation in a bar or going to the cinema or sitting on the metro and seeing an advert and realizing there was a word in it you didn't understand and jotting it down. So te- kind of te- treating the world as your language playground in a way. And after that, I studied modern languages at Cambridge University, which was a very different experience of language learning. And there the focus was more academic, less on speaking and communication and more on translation, literature, history, politics, more about the target culture and context than the language itself. I loved the experience. I had a great time, but I wouldn't say that was where I learned the languages. 
where it did come back round to more practical use was in our third year, which was a compulsory year abroad. And I spent a year in Leipzig as part of the Erasmus exchange program where you can study at a foreign university. And I studied German literature there for a year. But again, it was kind of more the extracurriculars that I felt with a real education. I got involved in a theater group, an amateur dramatics group, and I was the only non-German in the group. And we were putting on a production of a Swiss playwright, um, Durenmatz, Die Physiker, The Physicists. I don't know if you know it. It's a dark comedy. Um, I, I found it quite funny and thought-provoking. But the real magic of it was being part of a theater group. You're not, folk, you're not aware that you're le- learning the language. You're playing together, putting on a production. But of course, over the rehearsals, you're really using the language to come together with a group of people to make something happen. And unwittingly, through the constant repetition of the script, you are deeply, deeply internalizing a language in a way that I hadn't before. Actually, you already had passed the C2 diploma by the start of this year. And that was something I also realized C2 is not the end, even though C2 is the highest certifiable level and is technically mastery. There's much more beyond that. Um, And for me, theater was the way to make that next step. And then after I left university, my kind of language learning journey took my languages journey. Sorry, that was a disruptive noise. Maybe I'll just cut that sentence out. I don't know if you heard that in the background. I'll go back. Um, After I left university, my language journey kind of flipped to the other side. And instead of being the learner, I was the teacher. And I spent the next five years after that teaching English and German in Germany to various different groups of people. And did some teacher training in that time, studied applied linguistics um, as a postgraduate course, thinking about language acquisition. And then most recently at the moment, I'm working for Lingoda, where I'm kind of bringing all of this together as the team lead for the curriculum, where I'm in charge of developing the learning experiences for our learners and in particular, developing our materials for our language courses. All right, that's quite quite the uh, the roller coaster you've got there between like dipping into the academic world and then dipping back out again and coming back in. And I I'm sure this has contributed, uh, especially because, like you said, you've actually studied um, you know in postgraduate applied linguistics and the actual language acquisition side of things. Um, so you know, obviously, my background is is not in any sense uh, related to the academic side of linguistics, but I'm always interested to hear how these things help with the kind of work you're doing right now in terms of helping um, a modern language environment and helping people learn through that, as well as your experience with like private lessons that you've given people. So what do you think? Because, you know, obviously I, I've been critical of... Uh, of traditional academic learning, but there's so much power there. So I'd love to hear what the pros you've taken from both your um, modern language studies at Cambridge and then your postgraduate studies. And what uh, nuggets have you gotten from that that potentially uh, you would not have gotten otherwise from just purely living the language and doing things like theatre? 
um, that's a that's a really interesting question. Although I would actually say that in terms of influence on my own approach as a teacher, I think that the lived experience of being a learner and having to use the language practically has been more influential on how I approach teaching than more academic approaches, um, partly because of my experience that this was what made the difference for me as a learner was really using the language. And partly also because I think there's, there's less of a diff, I think there's less of a, an opposition between the insights of applied linguistics and maybe our lived experiences than maybe we like to think. I think in our mind, it's this cavernous gap between academia on one side and lived experience on the other. And what I find really exciting is actually research showing the overlaps between the two, that actually everything that is coming out of applied linguistics is showing the importance of meaning, of connection, of the human dimension, of using language for real purposes of the concept of like communicative competence, meaning not just knowing the words and the grammar, but actually being able to understand the kind of cultural pragmatic norms of the target language culture and what's appropriate to say in different, so in different contexts, this concept of appropriacy. So for me, they've not been in opposition. I think they've really enriched each other. But when I'm creating courses or when I'm teaching, I'm more influenced by my own experience of using the language to communicate as a learner or trying to really understand what is the next step for the class I'm teaching, for the person I'm teaching to help them fulfill what their own pressing communicative need is more than thinking they really need to understand the data now. Of course. And then on the flip side, what do you uh, think in terms of your, your current role at Lingoda, uh, your experience with, the, uh, with private tutoring in English and German, uh, how do you think that differs from the kind of, uh, you know, you're not directly necessarily teaching individuals, but like how has it influenced it and how is it different uh, compared to the more one-on-one experiences that you've had? Mm. So in my, in my teaching career, I did teach quite a lot of one-on-one classes, but um, actually groups more often and very different uh, types of groups. There was a real difference between my experiences of teaching English and teaching German in terms of the types of groups I was working with. And each of them has had their influence on my teaching methodologies and my understanding of learning. When I taught English, it was mostly Germans wanting to learn English for quite academic purposes or career purposes. I taught academic writing at the University of Leipzig Language Center, for example, and that was very theoretical. Um, And when I taught German, there my target group was nearly all migrants, refugees, people who just arrived in Germany and needed the language to find their feet. And 
for those people, it was not a nice to have. This would be good for my career or good for my academic credentials, but this is a matter of survival. These people that I taught often didn't speak English, didn't speak any other kind of bridge language to the German um, people that were surrounding them. And for them, learning German made the difference between you're sick and you go to the doctor and you can explain where you're hurting or you can't, or you're at the job center and you're applying for social security and you can fill in the form and get it or you can't. So it was really immediate in terms of their needs. And that really affected how I taught them as well. I didn't place so much emphasis on grammatical accuracy, maybe especially at the early stages, but spent a lot of time trying to understand the context of their lives, what they were struggling with, what I could teach them today that would make their world tomorrow better, what I could teach them this week that would mean next week they could cope better with the situation that they were in. But of course, being able to do that was dependent on me knowing them personally and building a relationship with them and understanding them intimately as people and their whole context of their lives. And that's the real difference between being a classroom teacher and working in materials development, as I do now for Lingoda, where I don't see my learners in front of me every day. I don't know each and ind- each individual learner as an individual. I can't co-construct a curriculum with, with them one-on-one personally in a small group. I have to try to anticipate more what their needs are and what their desires are, what their motivations are. And I'm still trying to do the same thing as I would be doing with a class but I'm kind of at one step removed. Where I'm lucky, what helps me do that is that we have a very good UX research team at Lingoda whose job it is to interview learners and try to understand them better, what they want to learn, what their motivations are, what they're struggling with, what they could do with more help with. And they feed these insights back to us so I can try to take those into consideration but it's a bit less of a personal relationship. On the other hand, at Lingoda, what's different is that we offer the learners the chance to take agency over their curriculum. So unlike in an offline class or some other course providers where you might sign up and you begin here and end here and you do your class on Tuesday evenings and you're going to do what the teacher has decided is best for you, at Lingoda, the learners can co-construct their curriculum by picking the modules that they want and the classes that they want in the order that they want and at the times that they want. So we encourage learners to be agents of their own learning. They can see essentially a menu of options with can-do statements of what you can do at the end of each class. And they can decide, is this something that's useful for me? Is this what I need? Or can I skip this part? Um, you talk about applying a triage system to what you work and your to what you learn in your book by really thinking for yourself, is that what I need or is that actually not relevant right now? So I guess it's it's a little bit flipped around that as a classroom teacher, you're kind of less able to personalize um, for each learner. You have to teach the whole class together, but you can know them more intimately as people. Whereas at Lingoda, I can't know them so personally, but they can personalize for themselves by picking what they want to learn. Absolutely. And as you said, I've, uh, I've got my own experience in creating courses and I'd love to hear 
what your own experience was and like how do you even make a curriculum when like you said it's a very different system if the student is kind of self-guiding and if they're taking more initiative in picking and choosing what they're potentially going to be doing because that's very different to a traditional course that you have to decide for them each step that's going to go uh, go forward so how do you make those decisions and how do you make a, a, pick, a choose your own adventure version of language learning? Um, it's a challenge. It's a delicate balance um, between learner guidance and supporting learners who might feel less confident in taking a pick and mix approach and also giving them the freedom to construct their own course. The first step for me is because we use the CEFR as our framework for course design, um, the common European framework of reference which specifies what you should be able to do at each level of proficiency, that's always the starting point for me. Not thinking, what should they know? What facts should they know? What words should they know? But thinking, what should the learner at, at C1, an advanced level, be able to do with the language? What should they be able to understand? What kind of argument should they be able to make? How should they be able to express themselves? And then working backwards from there, thinking, what learning outcomes would support someone in reaching that final outcome. So that helps decide the balance of skills and some of the learning outcomes. But then, as you say, in terms of the content, it's build your own adventure because there's, you know, if you can discuss topical issues, there's an infinite number of topical issues that you could discuss. So there, the challenge is trying to find something for everyone, trying to have a real balance so that hopefully everyone should find their interests reflected in the options on offer. If not, we also have a customized course option where you can request a private lesson on whatever you want and you can submit in advance exactly what it is you want to learn and the teacher will make that specially for you. But for in general, yeah, trying to have something for everyone, trying to find a nice balance and trying to stay up to date. I think that's the other big challenge. In a classic textbook, you have a lot of scenarios that maybe aren't fully reflective of your modern learner. You might have getting a taxi. How many people are getting taxis now? Is it not making small talk with your Uber driver maybe? Or you might have shopping in a physical shop. Well, maybe people are buying their clothes online. Maybe that's a relevant context. And in terms of reading, are people reading newspaper articles or is it an Instagram post? Are people writing letters or are they writing WhatsApp? So trying to stay up to date is really important. Getting constant feedback from learners. What we write, you're always predicting, I think this is interesting for you. I think this is useful, but we look very carefully always at the ratings that learners give. They always have the option to say afterwards, this wasn't relevant to me. This wasn't interesting. This was boring. This was too easy. This was too hard. So it's also a constant process of calibration and learning from our learners about what they like, what they appreciate, and what they don't like. And in terms of how this framework uh, kind of follows, because you guys cover multiple languages, uh, do you have a similar framework or do you try to treat something like Japanese completely different to how you would French, for instance? Mm, that's a really interesting question. And with something we debate a lot within our team um, is how to approach different languages and how far we can treat them in the same way 
by pinning everything to the CEFR, which is language agnostic and not based on any particular language and how far we need to take a particular approach. We don't offer any non-European languages. We offer English, French, German, and Spanish. So I think that narrows it down a bit and makes it a bit easier to have a bit more comparability across languages. Um, nonetheless, even though we're working to the same learning outcomes across languages, of course, we do take a slightly different approach in terms of the topics that we're picking for different languages. And we know that learners often have different motivations for learning different languages as well, which we try to reflect in our curriculums. For English, it's often professional reasons that people give as their most common reason for learning English. So we have some more work-related topics in our curriculum there. For German, it's very often relocation purposes. And our typical learners for German are often expats who are living in Germany. For Spanish and French, travel and holidays and culture are more important motivations so this also influences the choices of topics. And of course, we want all of our courses to reflect the target language culture as well. We want to include a lot of authentic and real life language in there. We want to give insights into the different countries that where those languages are spoken. So in terms of the text choices and the topic choices, they will definitely be connected to the language in question. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'd love to hear your perspective on uh, something that like is a bit of a dichotomy that I'm always thinking about. Because um, similar to you, I've created language courses and I, I have systems where I try to coach people to learn uh, languages online and I recommend tools online. But at the same time, I've also experienced language learning in much more, as I like to call it, meat world, much more like physical, actual interactions with people, like in your case, things like the, the theater experience, which would have been so different. So I'd love to, to hear what would be, in your view, the pros and the cons of technology, because obviously Lingoda is based on a lot of the modern available aspects of the internet that wouldn't have existed 10 or 20 years ago. But um, like that gives you a lot of uh, of like edges that you can uh, you can push people forward. But at the same time, no amount of technology is necessarily going to replace a certain aspect of language learning. So what, what do you feel the pros and cons of modern technology and language education would be? Oh, I love this question um, because there's so much to it. Um, in terms of the pros of online learning. Here, I really see the pro is access, that it makes things possible that just might not be possible otherwise. Obviously, learning the language with other people in the target language culture on location can be a fantastic experience, but it's not accessible or realistic to many people. Um, people trying to fit language learning around busy schedules or parenting or changing schedules. It's a difficult option for some people. Maybe you live in a remote area. Maybe you don't have great teachers where you live. Maybe you don't have access to native speakers. And learning online makes things possible that simply might not be possible in the real world. And it also offers some other really exciting benefits that are actually over and above what you can have in an offline environment beyond just access. Really exciting. So you can have people sitting in a classroom 
who themselves are all over the world. You could have a Spanish class taking place and you could have someone sitting there with your teacher in Mexico and one participant's in Berlin, one's in London, one's in Shanghai, one's in Florida, and they're all taking the class together and learning from each other. And it means you can have really exciting conversations with other participants where real communication is happening, not just everyone looks out the window and says, it's raining today, but everyone's having different seasons. It's a different time. It's a different uh, time of day in different people's locations. They have very different daily routines, different lives, different cultural expectations. And you can bring all of that to the classroom and use it to have really fascinating conversations. And you can also access teachers who aren't just living where you are, but are embedded in the culture of the language you're trying to learn. At Lingoda, we also rotate teachers. So you might have a different teacher every lesson and your teacher might be based in a different part of the world every time. So you're going to be encountering a different accent, a different set of background, cultural knowledge, different things to share with you. And that would be very difficult to recreate in an offline setting. There's also possibilities for integration of self-learning and online learning that are more difficult to create in the offline world. It's more possible to integrate quizzes, self-study elements that can tie in with what you're doing in the class, with what you're doing in the lesson, and to personalize that. It's not that everyone does the same homework in the book, but people can have adaptive technology to help them remember the words that they learned in the lesson using flashcard technology, for example. On the other hand, there are definitely challenges to learning online. I can't deny that. And the biggest challenge for me is actually this excess of information and possibilities. It sounds incredible that we have all these options. It sounds amazing that at our fingertips, we have access to more possibilities, more information than our grandparents maybe ever had in their whole lives within you know a few minutes. But that can also cause kind of analysis paralysis and overwhelm and people don't know where to get started because it's just too much stuff. And there, I think it can help to have a framework given to you by a course or a program that you commit to rather than getting lost in all that's out there. And there's also the problem of attention. I think this is worth being open about. The internet is a machine of distraction. You can have a million tabs open at once. We have this habit or expectation of multitasking when we're online. I don't want to call anyone out, but I would be amazed if many people were listening to this podcast just sitting down and listening and not doing the washing up or walking the dog or doing their tax return at the same time. And language learning needs focus. Language learning happens when we show up cognitively with our whole selves and really commit to the process with engagement and with passion. And this is a challenge as a course designer. You know that you're fighting with way more distractions than you as a teacher in an offline school where everyone's just sitting in a room together or fighting with, and you have to know what you're up against and design materials with this in mind to be as engaging as possible, as interesting, as relevant as possible, and where you're making interaction happen so that people are talking, speaking, sharing in small groups with a live person to prevent the tendency of people to drift off when they're learning online. Another thing we've tried to do in our courses to counteract this um, tendency is to make the learners do more work. So in a traditional 
language course, be in a traditional textbook, you might have your grammar presented to you deductively, where you have a table and you read the table and you learn your daddy das for German and then you do an exercise. But what are you doing while you're looking at the table? Is your teacher just reading it to you? What are you doing? There's plenty of time for your mind to wander. We like to flip it round in what we do. And this is something I started doing before I taught at Lingoda and I'm now trying to bring into the Lingoda courses more. We do something called guided discovery, where the teacher guides you to discover the grammar yourself. I think actually you have elements of this, Benny, in your uh, German hacking book and your other hacking books, where you'll present a dialogue and then ask questions to push the learner to say, what do you think this word means in context? What do you notice um, is changing about this verb when it's with a different subject? And this is making the learner show up. It's making them be awake. It's keeping them engaged. And you're much more likely to retain and remember what you had to struggle a bit to work out. So this is what we try and do in our new materials. Very good. And on the same point, where do you see the future of online learning going? Like, how do you imagine developments with the next version of how the web is going to be or if potentially VR might be uh, an aspect of it or is there some other way that because uh, like you said it's a uh, the internet can be a big distraction is there some way we can potentially improve upon that and how do you see online language learning as evolving over the next five or ten years I wish that I had this crystal ball and I could see exactly what's going to happen because I think there's so many changes bubbling beneath the surface. And if we look at where we've come just since the start of the pandemic, when a lot of teaching moved online, and if we look at the huge development that's happened just since 2020 in terms of the quality of courses online and the ambition of these courses and what they can offer, if we look five or 10 years in the future, I can only imagine it's going to get even more so. My hope is that we'll continue to use technology to bring people together. That's my hope of where I see the most potential. I hope that we're not looking at a kind of automatic translation future where you speak into your phone and it speaks back out and language learning is regarded as obsolete or where language learning moves away from human interaction and people learn with an AI partner who tutors you. I think there's a space for this. I think that it can be helpful for providing spaced repetition and retrieval practice and things like this. But my hope is that we continue to use technology to connect people in ever more sophisticated and seamless ways. Whether that's in virtual reality and you meet your tutor under the Eiffel Tower and order a cup of coffee with them, um, or if it's via forums and other ways of connecting people or via much more sophisticated an interactive uh, video conference technology. I think those would be things that I'd be excited about. And I hope that that's where we're going with technology and language learning. And uh, back to your, your own personal story, I, I'd love to hear, because um, like, you know, I, I'm, uh, I practice what I preach myself. I, I talk about language learning and I do language learning. But of course, there are times in my life when I've run into challenges and I haven't had um, the same level of motivation or I've had personal struggles that have held me back. So um, how has your own personal language learning evolved over uh, the last decade or so, especially lately that, you know, with your German, what do you do to really push it up? And are there other languages that you're personally learning uh, beyond what you already know? Yeah, I, I think that's really important for any language educator to be a lifelong learner. I think that the two kind of feed off each other. 
and um, practicing what you preach is really important. With my own learning journey with German, what I'm very aware of, as I mentioned earlier, is that C2 is not the end. C2 is actually in some ways the beginning. C2 is when you've got to the point where, yes, you understand everything with ease. Yes, you can express whatever it is you want to express with some degree of nuance and sophistication, but there is an infinite journey beyond that to really explore and understand the language as there is with our own native languages. We're never finished. I'm never finished with English. I'm never as sophisticated and nuanced in my expression as I could be. You can always learn new words, develop your understanding of how the language works. So German is no longer for me in this kind of acute active learning phase where I'm taking classes, but I every day I'm curious and ask questions whenever I encounter something that makes me wonder, I'll look it up. If I hear a word that I haven't heard before, maybe a dialect word, I will be noting it and reflecting on it. So that's where I am with my German, just on the never-ending journey that I hope never stops um, to ever deeper understanding and, and love, really, which comes from understanding. My current challenge is to reactivate my French. I had French as an advanced, I was certified back in 2009, I think, as C1 or C2. And as German took a bigger role in my life, I didn't maintain my French as actively. I had sporadic bursts of effort on it. I spent some time in France. I did language courses um, in France and spent time reading and did some tandem partnerships. But now I have come to a point where I'm really determined to level back up again and regain the degree of fluency and confidence that I had in the past. And here the challenge is one of interference that I've had the feedback that I've now developed a German accent or a German intonation pattern in French. And I find this really fascinating because I didn't speak French with German speakers. I didn't learn French through German. And yet somehow the German has interposed itself back onto the French. And I think this speaks to one of the challenges that you talk a lot about, Benny, is maintaining all of your languages and dealing with interference and trying to keep a number of languages at the same level. So I don't have a solution for this yet, but this is my, my current uh, personal language challenge. And uh, sometimes in the podcast, I like to give people a, a chance to, I like to turn it around, give people a chance to ask me questions. And considering you are familiar with my courses and because uh, you, you talked about very specific aspects of them and that you know my own story, uh, I'd be curious if there's any questions you'd like to ask me that you think the listeners might be interested in. I'm curious about your own time as an English teacher, because I believe that you did teach English at different stages. Did you do a, did you do a CELTA training for this? Oh, man. So when I first started traveling, my mum treated me to um, a weekend TEFL certificate that you could do in a, in a hotel in my hometown in Ireland. Um, and it was literally just a Saturday and a Sunday. And then I had a certificate and this was like the absolute bare bones minimum you would need to be able to have something on your uh, CV, to be able to get a job. So from there, I was then able to, uh, you know, a, co a combination of that and a, and a bit of Irish charm. I got um, a, a job at the Berlitz Institute in uh, Toulouse in the south of France. And I learned a lot from that experience and I went on to work for other bigger language schools. Um, but yeah, I, I essentially, that, that weekend TEFL course 
as brief as it was, it did give me an interesting perspective because uh, I still remember to this day, um, one of the instructors asked me, you know, what's the difference between I ate and I have eaten? And I was like, I have no idea. You know, it's my mother tongue. But I, if somebody asked me that question, I wouldn't know. And he explained it to me. And it was just so fascinating to me, the idea that I could be uh, explained how something that is just so natural to me works. And this is something I've incorporated into my language. So I'm always aware that like, we tend to think as learners that a native speaker is, uh, is on this pedestal and they're like the, the end goal of this perfect genius that just knows everything about the language. That's not true. Native speakers are idiots. You know, I'm an idiot. I, can't, I couldn't, like, I had to learn a lot of these things. If you ask a native speaker, why do you say something this way instead of that? Some of them, if they have some kind of a background in languages, they're going to be able to give you that explanation. But most people on the street have no idea what the differences are. So in a way, we actually, as language learners, have a little bit of an advantage over the uh, native speakers that we understand uh, the language from this di different perspective. So I have this slightly different perspective in English now because I've been an English teacher, um, even though it's something I got into much later in life because my background's in engineering. Uh, but like, I always think that the people I'm communicating with, they're, they're just other humans they're not, I don't put anyone on a pedestal because I guarantee you, if you ask somebody, uh, you know, if you ask a native Spanish speaker, what's the difference between ser and estar? If they're not a language teacher, they're just going to say, well, it's right in this situation and it's wrong in that. I don't really know why. Whereas having studied the language, I could talk for hours about what the difference between ser and estar are. So it's, um, it's always been interesting to me. And I got that perspective in a large part, thanks to uh, teaching English, it gave me a very interesting perspective that initially I just thought, well, English is English. It's just existed my whole life. It, it is what it is. It all makes sense. But now I understand how completely illogical and ridiculous the English language is and how inconsistent the spelling rules are and how um, phrasal verbs can be an absolute nightmare and so many things that we take for granted. And that's helped me as I get into other languages. And it's, it's helped me whenever people uh, try to take the position of this language is hard. I can take the opposite position and I can say, well, here's why German is easy. If you compare it to even English, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. If you compare it to uh, Rom Romance languages, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. So as a language teacher, I've had this uh, interesting perspective and uh, I got into it from just a very basic weekend TEFL certificate and then just lots of experience after that. Yeah, that's, that's, a really, that's, that's a really interesting point that you brought up. And it kind of connects back to what I was saying at the beginning about finding it easier for me to teach German than English. And I think it's exactly what you're saying, that because I'd learned German myself, I had that learner perspective on how the language works, which I was simply missing for English, despite then, as a part of teacher training, understanding it from a teacher perspective and how you can explain different grammatical 
phenomena. It's not quite the same as having the lived experience of having battled with that as a learner. But I'm, I'm curious as well about how you talked about then how your experience as a teacher helped you understand the difference between languages and their different relative challenges. Did it also influence the way that you approached your next language learning missions? Did you learn anything from your students about how they were learning English and what worked and didn't work by observing them that you took with you and applied to your own language learning journeys? Uh, in a way, yes, because I feel like as a teacher, it's very easy to uh, distance yourself emotionally from the task at hand and to see the mistakes other people are making and to tell them, I'll do it this way. It's so much better if you, if you do it that way. Whereas as the learner, we tend to fall back on a lot of things. So like as a learner, my initial uh, instinct is I just need to study a lot. I need to put my head in a grammar book and just push on through it. Whereas as a teacher, I know that's not the way it is. And I, I know that I need to encourage my students to speak. And they need to nudge them out of this, uh, you know, far too traditional me uh, learning method of I just study my way to fluency. And even to this day, I still get tempted by, you know, instead of going out and using the language, oh, I should just open up a, a book and study. And the teacher in me recognizes from seeing that in my students that this is not the way forward. And one of my uh, teaching approaches, because I did a lot of teaching in uh, schools with like children uh, in the likes of Spain, um, was I, tr I really tried to make it about communication. And I, I literally, while I was studying for my C2 diploma in Spanish, I pretended that I couldn't speak a word of Spanish when I was with my students. And they, they would speak Spanish to me and I'm, I would say, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Could you say that in English? And that perspective of forcing it to be a means of communication instead of a thing that you study is, as a teacher, I could see this mistake happening time and again. And it's why when I make that mistake as a learner, I have this other perspective. And I, I do like to remind myself, Benny, you're making the same mistake that you've seen other people make. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue making that mistake because I'm human. And I'm, I am definitely uh, open to being flawed in a lot of different ways. But that perspective of being the teacher and knowing I have to get out and use my language, I have to uh, find someone online and have a, have a language practice session with, or all the other things you said, like I have to send WhatsApp messages. I have to, if I'm going to use Instagram, I, I really should use it in the other language. And all of these things are things that I know that I could tell other people and then you know, when people ask me in a podcast, how should you learn a language? I can tell you all these things, but at the same time, I need to apply it in my own life. And that kind of teacher-student dynamic has shown me that I, I need to have this teacher's voice in my head to remind me, you're not doing it the right way. You need to, you know the, what you need to do and you need to switch things up. So yeah, it's definitely given me that different perspective. And I think uh, before I was a language teacher, I, I really just, the only idea I had was you had to study your way to fluency. And by having the academic side of teaching in my classes mixed with me trying to nudge them in a different direction, because obviously some classes you have to stick to a particular curriculum. That's the way the, um, the institution wants you to do it. But I would try to branch off from that 
And I try to like integrate that into my life whenever I'm learning the language. So yeah, very good questions. I hope people have found that perspective interesting. And uh, to wrap it up, I would love to hear, because this is the Language Hacking Podcast, I'd love to hear what your definition of language hacking is. Oh, um, that's a great question. For me, language hacking is about working smarter, not harder to learn languages. It's about finding shortcuts that will help you get to where you want to get faster. It's not about cheating and it's not about being superficial, but it's about recognizing which items you could focus on learning are going to have the most leverage. You can learn lists and lists of words, but if they're not high frequency words, they're not going to get you speaking quickly. You could learn as in typical beginner textbooks, you might have lots of lists of colors, um, you might have lots of lists of colors animals, items of furniture. How often do you actually talk about your sofa compared to chunks of formulaic language that you're going to use over and over and over again, like introducing yourself, high frequency connecting words, regular adjectives, numbers, things like this. And it's about prioritizing the things that are going to get you the most mileage out of your learning to kickstart your learning journey and then filling in later, perhaps these parts that you might have missed at the beginning. But we often, I think, learn languages back to front. We focus on low frequency, but kind of common topics first, like like talking about your pets and ignore that in the real world, we don't really do that very much. So it's taking a real world, high frequency approach to language learning. Very well said. Well, thank you very much for joining us in the podcast today. We'll make sure that in the show notes for the episode, there are links to, of course, Lingoda, but obviously to uh, your own stuff as well. And people should definitely check that out, having learned a little bit about it in today's episode. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Benny. That was really interesting. Yeah, no, it was a great chat. Thank you very much. And I'll wish everybody listening until the next time a very happy language learning. At the end of these episodes, I love to dive into a little bit of a takeaway that uh, me and sometimes my co-host have from that episode. And uh, in having this conversation with Philippa, there's an interesting thing that came up that I think uh, is very quotable in a way, uh, is when I was asking her about the pros and cons of technology. And it's that the pro is the access that we have to so many materials and the con is the excess. So she didn't point this out specifically, but I think the juxtaposition of access and excess is just such an interesting way of looking at it that when we think of technology, that's the big advantage that with languages, we have, uh, we have access to so many online materials that you could listen to all day long. You could find teachers. There's a, a wealth of courses, but at the same time, there's an excess of them because there's an overwhelming amount. And sometimes you don't know where to start. And especially with the distractibility of the likes of social media, and you can get sucked down a lot of different wells that don't necessarily help you. So I think for me, that was my big takeaway that with technology, 
the pro is the access and the con is the excess. And uh, obviously, coming from the perspective of Lingoda, we can see there are lots of advantages and Philippa talked about them in great detail. But I always uh, remind people to think about the ways that you can use languages without necessarily relying on technology. Uh, but obviously, as she mentioned, if right now you don't have uh, the ability to find in-person methods you can practice, then that access is the huge power of technology. So yeah, that, that for me is just an interesting way of thinking about how technology plays a role in our life. And that would be my big takeaway from that episode. So I hope you've enjoyed it. And as always, be sure to leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review and uh, hit me up on social media if you want to ask me any questions that you want me to talk about in my own standalone episodes. But until the next time, I'll wish you all very happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.